Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, October 28th and Sunday, October 29th, 2023. There are a few anniversaries this weekend. On October 28th in the year 312, the Roman Emperor Constantine defeated his rival Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, uh, which is perhaps most famous for the religious vision that Constantine allegedly received the night before, which later accounts was said to have been the Cairo, or the interlocking Greek letters that are the first two letters of Christ, and thus became an emblem of Jesus. The battle left Constantine as the unquestioned ruler of the Roman West, with his fellow Augustus Licinius as ruler of the Roman East, and they and it marked the end, uh, really, of Diocletian's four-emperor tetrarchy system. Constantine's vision is regarded as the impetus behind the 313 uh, Edict of Milan, in which he and Licinius declared Christianity a religion with all the protected status that imparted under Roman law. Uh, and naturally, of course, the two uh, Augusti eventually went to war with one another, with Constantine emerging as the sole Roman emperor in 324. Uh, on October 28, 1922, if we stick with Rome, Benito Mussolini's fascist party began the two-day march on Rome that would end with its takeover of the Italian government. As Mussolini's black shirts approached the city, Prime Minister Luigi Facta called for martial law, but Italian King Victor Emmanuel III opted instead to get rid of Facta and make Mussolini his new prime minister. Uh, I wonder how that all worked out for them. On October 29, 1923, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk declared the founding of a Turkish Republic, replacing the by now obviously defunct Ottoman Empire. Although Ataturk's Grand National Assembly had been functioning as a Republican government since 1920, this day is annually commemorated as Republican Day or Republic Day in Turkey. Uh, on October 29, 1929, this is, of course, the date of the crash of 29, which began with Black Thursday on the 24th and continued with Black Monday on the 28th and then ended with Black Tuesday on the 29th. Uh, over those final two days, the U.S. stock market lost roughly a quarter of its value, and by July 1932, the Dow Jones Industrial Average stood at just over 40 points, which was down from roughly 380 points in September 1929. Uh, the crash signaled the onset of the Great Depression, a global economic collapse that especially hit industrialized Western nations and those countries dependent on the West for trade and investment, and that wouldn't really end in many places until after the onset of World War II. And on October 29th, 1956, this is the anniversary of the start of the Suez Canal crisis, or the Suez crisis. Uh, there's a piece on this up at the website, so I won't go into much detail. Suffice to say, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser decided to nationalize the Suez Canal, causing the British government and the French government to have a conniption fit. Uh, they immediately began planning an invasion to retake the canal from Egyptian forces and remove Nasser from power. They enlisted uh, the Israeli military as their ground forces, and they uh, got on pretty well for, uh, for a few days. They were militarily ascendant until the United States government, in a shocking, if you're uh, just tuning into U.S. policy in the Middle East, uh, the United States government stepped in and ordered them essentially to knock it off. This was a big turning point uh, in Cold War history as it represents the United States really muscling Britain out of a place that had been part of Britain's sphere of influence and, and showing conclusions exclusively that the new uh, great power in the so-called West uh, was the United States and not Britain. Um, anyway, as I say, there's a piece about this uh, at the uh, at the website. So if you want to read more, please do that. Uh, let's move on to the news in the Middle East. We'll start as we have been uh, lately with Israel-Palestine. The Israeli military, or IDF, has now clearly moved into what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other officials have characterized as the second phase of its operations in Gaza. What 
exactly that phase entails is still emerging, but so far it's involved more extensive Israeli incursions into Gaza, though it seems likely that, like they're uh, still holding off on a sustained ground operation, and more intensive bombardments that include large penetrating munitions meant to destroy the extensive network of tunnels that Hamas and other militant groups have dug below Gaza. Israeli leaders may be reluctant to send their forces into Gaza on anything other than in-and-out raids until they feel they've destroyed a significant part of that network. Hamas leaders have said that their forces are engaged in heavy fighting with Israeli units, but it's difficult to know what that really means amid a particularly heavy fog of war that was made foggier by the Israeli decision to knock out internet and cellular service in Gaza on Friday. The fog lifted somewhat over the weekend when those services were at least partially restored, apparently in response to a demand from the U.S. government. Uh, even with some communications back up by Sunday, it's still been difficult to track what's happening except to say that it has been devastating for Gaza's civilian population. Health officials say the death toll in Gaza has now risen above 8,000 since October 7th, more than 3,300 of them children. For those Gazans who are still alive, the International Red Cross called the humanitarian situation in Gaza intolerable over the weekend. Uh, the IDF dropped more leaflets over Gaza City on Saturday, once again advising residents to move south, while Kogat, the IDF office that manages the occupation in Gaza and the West Bank, is now claiming that it is, quote, planning to increase dramatically the amount of assistance, end quote, that is entering southern Gaza in the coming week. Just 94 truckloads of aid have passed through the Rafah checkpoint in Egypt over the past week, which is still less aid than the United Nations says it needs to bring in per day. International Criminal Court Prosecutor Karim Khan suggested on Sunday that an Israeli failure to permit aid to enter Gaza uh, could be a crime under ICC jurisdiction, uh, which would be more interesting if Khan had any conceivable way to enforce such a determination. Uh, while he continues to suborn the violence that's created this humanitarian disaster, Joe Biden has allegedly been pushing for increased aid flows in discussions with Netanyahu and Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi. Israeli officials say they've marked out a humanitarian zone in southern Gaza, but it remains far from clear whether, for example, they intend to stop bombing in that zone or whether people who, are, who evacuate northern Gaza will ever be allowed to return. Chances of the latter are probably slim, Israeli rhetoric to the contrary notwithstanding. In other news, uh, we're regularly told that one of the reasons the 3,000-plus kids and counting needed to die here is because of the hostages Hamas and other military groups seized during their rampage through southern Israel on October 7th. What an unchecked aerial bombardment of Gaza and some heavy ground raids are supposed to do to secure the freedom and or safety of those hostages is beyond me, and indeed Hamas has claimed that Israelis, uh, the Israeli airstrikes have killed some 50 hostages so far. It may be worth noting that the hostages' families Families, according to uh, the AP and, and other outlets, don't seem all that thrilled with Netanyahu and company right now. Uh, Hamas has reportedly offered an everyone-for-everyone everyone prisoner swap, the hostages for the thousands of Palestinians being held by the Israelis, and at least some of those family mem members seem to be pressing the Israeli government to accept. Uh, needless to say, that seems like an extreme long shot. Uh, according to the Washington Post, there's a senior U.S. official telling reporters that the reason none of the U.S. nationals currently trapped in Gaza uh, have been allowed to leave is because Hamas isn't allowing it. This is interesting because in interviews with the foreign nationals who have been massing at Rafah for days now waiting to be allowed out, there's been no mention of Hamas fighters or any other militants blocking the way. And the Egyptian government has blamed Israeli bombardments of the checkpoint for blocking an evacuation. Apparently, those foreign nationals should believe Washington instead of their lying eyes. 
Uh, switching focus to the West Bank for a moment, Israeli security forces killed at least five Palestinians in multiple raids on Sunday morning, including two in one assault on a refugee camp in Nablus. At least 110 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank and East Jerusalem since October 7th, and Israeli authorities say they've arrested over 1,000 alleged militants, including a whopping 700 alleged Hamas operatives. At least seven of those deaths have come at the hands not of security forces, but of Israeli settlers, including one murder in a village outside of Nablus on Saturday. Settler violence has skyrocketed since October 7th. A settler mob reportedly drove out all the residents of the village of Wadi Asik near Ramallah earlier this week, and there have been additional reports of settlers ordering the evacuation of Palestinian villages near Hebron. Uh, Israeli security forces are, by all accounts, enabling these activities and protecting the settlers. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning the rhetoric Netanyahu has been employing this weekend to discuss this second phase of the war. On the prosaic side, he's referred to this conflict as Israel's second war of independence. This is fairly absurd. As horrific as the October 7th attacks were, there's nothing about them that suggests an existential threat to the Israeli state, let alone something from which Israel needs to establish its already established independence. But it may be an instructive comparison in that Israel's actual war of independence involved the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, and it now seems like it seems like that's at least one possibility that awaits Palestinians in Gaza. On the religious side, he's invoked the biblical tale of Amalek, a mythic, as in there's no historical evidence for their existence, people uh, whose total destruction God orders in the book of 1 Samuel. Without dwelling too much on this, let's just say that if Netanyahu wants to convince the rest of the world his military is not committing a genocide, this is a pretty strange story to invoke. Uh, I guess the charitable interpretation is that he's only comparing Hamas to Amalek rather than everyone in Gaza or the Palestinians as a whole. But in 1 Samuel, God commands the annihilation of the entire Amalekite people, not just a warrior subset, so the parallel is not especially reassuring. Netanyahu, who doesn't normally display much public religiosity, does seem to be a fan of the Amalek story because he has invoked it a number of times in reference to Iran. Uh, Netanyahu got into a little bit of trouble early Sunday morning when he tweeted something that appeared to blame the heads of Israel's intelligence agencies for failing to warn him about the October 7th attacks. He deleted the tweet and apologized after taking significant criticism. Netanyahu's popularity has crashed amid understandable anger that his government failed to prevent the attacks, and I think he's a bit shaken by that, which probably means he's the wrong person to be in charge of a war right now, but I digress. Uh, the Israeli government summoned Russia's ambassador on Sunday to protest Moscow's decision to host a Hamas delegation back on Thursday. We covered that in the newsletter. I don't know that Israeli officials want to damage their relationship with Russia any more than Russian officials want to damage their relationship with Israel. But it's a geopolitical priority for the Russians now to stake out a position on Gaza that is A, opposed to the U.S., and B, aligned with much of the global south. So some damage may be unavoidable. Uh, this weekend saw a continued outpouring of support for Gaza in the form of protests all over the world. Many of them took place in predominantly Muslim countries, but several very large demonstrations were held in major Western cities and in India, among other places. None of this uh, is likely to change the course of the war, but it does mean something for a U.S. government that has at least expressed interest in improving its image in the global south. Uh, the so-called 
called Global South. Uh, this war doesn't appear to be especially popular among Global South citizens, and I think uh, Jonathan Geyer wrote uh, at Vox over the weekend is correct that the war is being viewed as Joe Biden's war, even as his administration tries to dodge responsibility for it. The Biden administration has fueled that perception with its public indulgence of every Israeli military excess, its at times revolting rhetoric, like questioning the Gazan death count, death toll, uh, and its efforts to ride shotgun for Israel at the United Nations. Members of the administration really pushed the Israel must protect civilian lives line over the weekend, but that's beyond too little too late. It's hard for them to disclaim any responsibility for the war when they're simultaneously leaking to the New York Times, as they did this weekend, that the Israelis are following their advice as they wage it. And when it's clear that the U.S. government can muscle the Israelis into changing policy, as it did with respect to the internet blackout we mentioned above, uh, mentioned earlier. And when even people inside the administration are increasingly unhappy, as was reported at Vice over the weekend, with what they're being asked to support. Uh, moving on to the rest of the region in Turkey, one of the largest pro-Palestine demonstrations this week took place in Istanbul on Saturday, where hundreds of thousands of people turned out for a rally led by none other than Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. I haven't seen definitive figures on the number of attendees. Erdogan's Justice and Development Party uh, suggested that over one million people were present, but even if that's an exaggeration, aerial photos show clearly that this was a- an absolutely massive event. Uh, I put, in, the, in writing this, I put pro-Palestine in quote. Uh, only because this weekend is also the centennial of the founding of the Turkish Republic, as we, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and Erdogan seems to have played on that a bit by reorienting these centennial festivities toward events in Gaza, which I assume is okay by Erdogan, whose relationship with Ataturk's legacy uh, is uneasy, to say the least. In a fiery speech on Saturday, Erdogan accused the Israeli government of openly committing war crimes for 22 days, that's a quote, and of trying to, quote-unquote, eradicate the Palestinians, and lambasted Israel's Western backers for doing nothing to stop it. His remarks were harsh enough to prompt Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen to order the withdrawal of Israeli diplomatic personnel from Turkey for what he termed, quote, a reevaluation of the relations between Israel and Turkey, end quote. Israeli staffers had already been recalled from Turkey for safety reasons, but this means they're not going back anytime soon. In Lebanon, Reporters Without Borders uh, says it now believes that the Israeli attack that killed Reuters reporter Issam Abdullah and wounded six other journalists in southern Lebanon earlier this month was deliberately targeted. Their investigation has determined that Israeli forces fired twice on the same location in short order, suggesting intentionality. Uh, To be sure, this does not mean that the Israelis knew they were firing on journalists, but that is one possibility. I should note that the Reporters Without Borders investigation concludes it is unlikely that the Israelis could possibly have mistook these journalists for combatants. Uh, in Iran, Armita Jerevan, the teenager who fell into a coma after a possibly violent encounter with Iranian morality police in Tehran earlier this month, died on Saturday, according to Iranian state media. Jerevan's case is so similar to that of Masa Amini, who likewise fell into a coma and died after a murky, to say the least, interaction with morality police last fall, uh, that it's raised speculation about a revival of the Amini protest movement. Nothing like that has occurred so far, presumably presumably because the heavy-handed government crackdown against those protesters has discouraged it. 
moving on to Asia and Pakistan. Pakistani security forces killed at least one unspecified militant and arrested two others during a raid late Friday in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. Sometime later in the same province, a roadside bomb killed two Pakistani soldiers. The Pakistani Taliban was presumably involved in both of these incidents. In India, a bombing at a convention center in Kerala state on Sunday killed at least one person and wounded another 36. The target appears to have been a gathering of Jehovah's Witnesses. There is no indication as to responsibility as far as I know. In Bangladesh, a protest organized by the Bangladesh Nationalist Party to demand the resignation of Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina turned violent on Saturday, resulting in the death of one police officer and injuries to more than 100 people. The BNP wants Hasina, who has a reputation for, shall we say, authoritarian tendencies, to resign and turn things over to an interim government to oversee January's general election. She has, of course, refused. Protest organizers are accusing police of causing the violence by firing tear gas into crowds of hitherto peaceful protesters. And in Myanmar, members of the Rebel Brotherhood Alliance reportedly continued the offensive they began on Friday through the weekend. The Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army and Tang National Liberation Army claimed on Saturday that their fighters had captured a combined eight military outposts across Myanmar's Shan state. There's no comprehensive word on casualties. Uh, Shan is situated along the Chinese border, and Chinese officials said on Friday that they are monitoring the new offensive. Uh, in Africa and Libya, fighting between rival militias in the northwest li- northwestern Libyan town of Garyan left at least four people dead and at least ten more wounded uh, on Sunday. It is unclear what sparked the clash, which was still going intermittently at last check, according to AFP. In Uganda, suspected Allied Democratic Forces fighters killed, at least, killed two Ugandan soldiers and two civilians late Friday in the eastern DRC's North Kivu province. One of the attackers also appears to have been killed in the inf- incident. The attack took place in the town of Kasindi, where the ADF uh, has carried out attacks in the past. In Europe, in Russia, a mob of hundreds of people descended on an airport in the Dagestan region on Sunday in an apparent anti-Semitic assault on the passengers of a flight from Israel. At least 20 people were injured in the ensuing violence, at least two of them critically. Dagestan is a predominantly Muslim region, and several members of the mob were waving Palestinian flags, apparently. Uh, In Ukraine, a new round of Ukrainian peace talks opened in Malta over the weekend. And yes, I've put peace in quotation marks because Russia wasn't invited. And so there's no way this event will actually involve any real peace talks. Instead, everybody's gathered to talk about Volodymyr Zelensky's proposed peace plan. Though, given that this is the third time one of these conferences has been held, it's unclear to me what's left to talk about. Uh, Mostly, it's about getting other countries to agree with Zelensky's plan. And in that sense, it seems to be working. Over the course of three sessions, attendance has climbed from 15 to 43 to this weekend, 66 participants, allegedly. Uh, This meeting also comes at an opportune time for Zelensky to remind participants that the war in Ukraine hasn't ended just because a new war has started in Gaza. In Spain, uh, Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has agreed to offer amnesty to Catalan separatist leaders implicated in the 2017 regional secession referendum, which may be enough to win him the Catalan support he needs in Parliament to form a government. Mathematically, Sanchez needs the support of two small Catalan separatist parties to win parliamentary confirmation. However, amnesty for 2017 was only one of the demands those parties have been making. They're also after a new legal secession vote. Given how unpopular the 
amnesty alone seems to be. There were mass protests this weekend. Polling suggests it's very unpopular. Uh, it's unclear whether Sanchez is prepared to concede the referendum as well. Uh, and if he can't get the Catalan parties on board, Spain will hold a snap election in January. In the Americas, in Ecuador, that country's drought-related energy problems are apparently going to be at least partially resolved, which uh, we, we mentioned this last week, I think on uh, maybe Friday uh, or uh, Thursday. Okay, it's Thursday. Uh, the Colombian and Ecuadorian governments announced a deal on Sunday whereby the former will deliver some 450 megawatts of geothermal power to the latter. The Ecuadorian government says it is facing a 650 megawatt power deficit thanks to decreased production from its hydroelectric dams. Uh, so this deal goes a long way uh, toward filling that gap. Uh, Ecuadorian officials have also cut deals to receive some 50 megawatts of, of power from Peru and an additional 100, additional 100 megawatts uh, from a geothermal or from thermal producers in Guayaquil. So uh, they're pretty close uh, to filling the entire 650 megawatt deficit. Uh, payment terms for the Colombian deal, by far the largest, obviously, have not been ironed out, but it may, they may involve an exchange for Ecuadorian energy once the drought ends. Uh, I didn't add this in the written newsletter, but uh, assuming it ever does end, I guess, if you want to be really pessimistic on the climate front. Uh Finally, in the United States, Jacobin's Bradley Simpson wrote a piece noting that when Joe Biden does things like accusing Gazan health officials of lying about casualties, uh, he's not only just being a revolting uh, human being, he's also upholding a proud U.S. tradition of atrocity denial on behalf of our friends and clients. And I'll read you a couple paragraphs of his piece. Uh, he writes, I wrote my first book on U.S. relations with Indonesia in the 1960s, and in particular, the Lyndon Johnson administration's support for the campaign of mass murder carried out by the Indonesian armed forces in late 1965 and early 1966 when it overthrew Indonesian President Suharto. Scholars estimate that the army and its allies slaughtered half a million Indonesian civilians between October 1965 and March 1966. Even as they provided crucial military and economic backing to Indonesia's armed forces, Johnson administration officials privately recommended, quote, the desirability of downplaying the extent of the carnage, especially when questioned by the press, end quote. The Johnson administration likewise rejected casualty figures of hundreds of thousands in Nigeria's U.S.-backed war against the Biafran secessionist movement between 1967 and 1970, while emphasizing its support for humanitarian access to the besieged state of eastern Nigeria. Washington's commitment to dismissing allegations of mass murder and atrocities carried out by its diplomatic friends was bipartisan and enduring. When Pakistan launched a war in 1971 to prevent the secession of East Pakistan, now Bangladesh, killing hundreds of thousands of people, President Richard Nixon and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger stood by the Pakistani military and sought to suppress or discredit reporting on the horrific civilian toll, leading to a low-level revolt by U.S. embassy officials in Pakistan. Following the U.S.-backed overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile in 1973, and again following a U.S.-backed military coup in Argentina in 1976, Nixon and later Gerald Ford administration officials publicly denied contemporary press, church, and human rights accounts of tens of thousands arrested, murdered, and tortured, accusing regime opponents of being pro-communist. Heaven forfend. Uh, on that note, that's all for us this weekend. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and especially to those of you who are subscribed to Foreign Exchanges. And if you're a paid subscriber, that goes double because you are the folks who make this possible. Uh, if you have not yet 
made the decision to become a paid subscriber but are thinking about it, please do uh, consider it. Uh, give it some more thought, I guess is what I'm saying, uh, because we could definitely use your support. Um, uh, with that, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.